As the excessive heat wave and exceptional drought tightened its grip on Texas this past summer, farmers like Robert Fleming faced enhanced challenges on his cattle, corn, and wheat farm in Bell County, Texas. By early September, the U.S. Drought Monitor classified all of Bell County, along with 19% of the state of Texas, in the area of exceptional drought, the worst of five drought categories. Meanwhile, business was booming even more than usual for Kevin Langford, a water well driller in central Texas. This is common during droughts, as people may want to change water sources or deepen existing wells. Howdy, GeoTrekkers. This is Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrek podcast. GeoTrek travels the world to investigate stories related to extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. We take you on journeys to understand the physical nature of natural disasters, their impacts on society, and what we can do to get out ahead of such disasters to reduce their impacts. On this episode of the podcast, we travel to Central Texas to participate in the 22nd Bell County Water Symposium, which was held in mid-November. Clearwater Underground Water Conservation District and their partners organized the symposium to provide a venue for stakeholders like Robert and Kevin to come together to interact about the latest science on water resources and environmental management. The title for this year's symposium was Water Resiliency and the Never-Ending Drought. This podcast provides interviews I conducted with numerous symposium participants. Before we get into those interviews, I wanted to share an important perspective that serves as a backdrop to the symposium. In much of Texas, droughts over recent decades have been superimposed on the backdrop of the highest population growth in the country. For context, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, five of the 10 fastest growing counties in the U.S. from 2021 to 2022 were located in Texas. Growth in cities like Georgetown, Texas has been absolutely mind-boggling. The U.S. Census Bureau classified Georgetown as the fastest growing city for the second year in a row for cities exceeding 50,000 people. Georgetown added more than 10,000 new people from 2021 to 2022, a growth rate of 14.4%. Georgetown has been on the top 10 list of fastest growing cities in the U.S. every year since 2016. This backdrop of explosive population growth provides context for the water symposium. Even if Texas had not faced an exceptional drought this past year, this region would still have major water issues to work through related to water resources because of the explosive population growth. This context makes central Texas a place worth watching as southern and western states have faced numerous droughts and rapid population growth in recent decades. Without further introduction, let's saddle up and let's ride out to these interviews I conducted at the Bell Water, at the Bell County Water Symposium. The first interview is with Dirk Aaron, General Manager of Clearwater Underground Water Conservation District. Dirk and I became friends last summer at a conference north of Houston, and we hit it off right away as we have a lot in common. He and his colleagues did a tremendous job organizing this year's water symposium. Dirk, I know you helped coordinate and, and lead the symposium. It was well-received. So many people loved the symposium. What was, the, what was the best part of the symposium for you? Well, part of it is the fact that people are so engaged in water and realizing that uh, we've been blessed by the decisions of the people from the Sam Rayburns and the, and the Lyndon Johnsons and then the, the, the people of this county. I could name you their names. They're all deceased and gone, but in 61, 62, and 63... They made some big financial investments, both federal money, state, and local, and we haven't done anything but live off their 
their generosity. And so now the people, these stakeholders here today know it's time for us Texans in Central Texas to do what was done for us for our next generation. That, that's resonating and people are not antagonistic to that conversation. Derek, in one of our first conversations, what I found in the flood world, people not knowing their history, you said, I can relate that right away to drought in Central Texas. How does that relate to what y'all are facing out here? So what you're saying is people are saying that live along the coast, they're experiencing uh, hurricanes or different degrees of things. I've lived, I, 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 my father was military. We uh, are from northwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, my parents were were raised in and around a town called Oil City, coal mine, dairy families. Uh, three of us kids were born there. Then we went to Europe after the Cuban Missile Crisis. My dad went back in the military, a Korean War veteran. But a lot of the veterans that were called up stayed. Uh, so we spent six, eight years, I think seven years in Germany. Multiple towns, multiple bases that are all closed since then. My dad always said, "We're coming. I'm, I'm going to end up in Texas and I'm going to own a ranch. So we ultimately was the next uh, place was Corpus Christi and uh, he built his first home 1965 uh, had three we had I had two sisters born in Europe so you talk today about 65 and then what occurred in 67 we had just been reassigned to Fort Hood Fort Cavazos now and that that neighborhood at Flower Bluff that was completely obliterated was never rebuilt because they built in an area that was so, you know, it's just part of the landscape in Corpus. So move here, and as my rule of thumb for everybody to understand, we live in a perpetual drought in central Texas with a few intermittent floods. And we pray for a hurricane either on the, on the you know, Acapulco's, what was it, Otis the other day? That changed us. That brought us out of the drought in a very minimal, but it was a it was a blessing for us. Unfortunately, it was a curse for those people in uh, in Mexico. It seems like a Pacific hurricane coming from Mexico, or a Gulf hurricane or tropical storm hitting Texas, that can be a blessing to y'all interior that often are dealing with very extreme drought in the summertime. Yeah, it's so I uh, when I was county agent here in two thousand eight was deployed. There was a hurricane. What was it, Ike? Uh, went down there, served, and the bands from that provided a lot of rainfall. And then there was some other occurrence in 2010 that caused an extreme rainfall event in Bell County that flooded a huge portion of the town of Slato where I live. Then the very next year was the beginning of, we had the drought of record, which is what, seven or eight years in the 50s. The epic drought of 2011 and 2012 is what we call, and that's a planning drought now of, of extremes. So it was followed those ma- those major rainfall events, and so we've been habitually back in a drought in 2018, again in 2020. We curtailed people in 2022, but then 2023, we feel like here we're experiencing worse con- conditions than we did in 2011 and 12 and it's not because the conditions are worse it's where we got 20 percent more people in 10 years so yeah, the population a- growth is so explosive here and it sounds like you're saying even if the drought isn't worse we have so many more people trying to draw that water yeah, that's right and so and their their habits are not uh People's water use habits that move here are not congenial with the traditional understanding. And so it's a, it's a steep learning curve. I'm not crucifying people. They just don't understand. If, you're, if they're dependent on a groundwater well in this area, it does not afford them long-term outs, 
outdoor landscape use, and that that's a painful discussion. The the judge did a great job today illustrating the growth and why it's happening. Uh, uh, it's because we're the north end of this extreme growth, and it, people are willing to commute an hour to work, hour and a half. So you start with uh, Tesla's two big plants, and then you move up Highway 95 to the city of Taylor. Samsung's one of the biggest plants, if not their biggest plant. Put three of those Tesla plants inside their first phase building. So now they're on to phases two, three, and four, maybe if so the uh, population growth because of that and the additional industrial uh, the widgets let's just use them as whatever that industry needs those widgets side contracts are already seeing in our in our cities here looking at small uh what what, i don't know what you term you use but support of that major facility yeah the multiplier effect right you get one industry growing and then more grow and and the population in this part of the country is really one of the fastest growing areas in the country right now and you named it to the first time i heard you speak at twca and, and you hinted to that today is because people are so concentrated along the coast they're actually beginning to migrate inland and so there is a there is a population that's moved here from along the coastal areas of Louisiana and Texas. Yeah, everybody wants to quickly say, oh, these West Coast people influencing us, and it's not necessarily that. But Well, and I heard a lot today, those people moving here from Houston, Atlanta, wherever they're coming from, they're often coming from wetter climates with green grass, and they just think a, a green lawn is just a normal thing. All of a sudden, they're coming to Central Texas where that's not really native to the area, right? Oh, absolutely. That's the habit. That's the paradigm shift that needs to occur in their own culture themselves. Once we show them how you can have an aesthetically pleasing home without a a huge irrigated landscape, uh, helping them understand that. Now, AgriLife Extension, the county agents, the master gardeners, master naturalist volunteer programs in Texas are critical to that uh, transfer of education. We are conservation district so we want to teach people how to conserve and use their groundwater in 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 a more sustainable manner is what i tell people i also heard a lot of people saying we understand we need economic growth but things like these massive solar farms right in in some senses maybe are not really fully understood yet what the impact could be on temperatures precipitation contamination anything like that What, what are your thoughts on that it seems like this is a change that's happening very rapidly out here in central texas that, that's right. The judge and the commissioner's court are, are being inundated with these applications, and then with that, uh, they want tax abatement. The, the county can't deny those facilities. They just don't have to incentivize it at different levels. But yet the incentivization for those solar farms is this uh, from Austin through the governor's office. There's a large push for uh, alternative energy sources. Uh, but what shocks us is we're a highly productive county the, in the eastern side of the county. Deep blackland soils, corn, uh, cotton, so, not soybeans, but uh, a maize or, or, or milo. And so those are cash crops. And when you start seeing 2,500 to 5,000 acre solar farms, and we see five being constructed, and the judges anticipating we may have up to 20 in Bell County, that's a substantial removal of agricultural production. The unknown is what 
it was expressed to you by people. And I, I as an agriculturalist, am concerned about what's the long-term impact. Uh, but there is some good articles out there where they have sustainable agriculture, goats uh, from uh, New Zealand and South Africa and boar goats and things like that integrated into those operations, if, if those can happen. It's more about uh, the change. Take... The, the farm community has lost this land. They may not have owned it, but they were sharecroppers. And so you displace a farmer to, and that, that's where there's some anxiety. But it's also the person who owns the land is a property rights state. And so finding balance between that is just like groundwater. We've got to find balance between the environmental uh, risks and the investment risk. Our next guest provides insightful perspectives about water policy and legislation in Texas. Madison Huerta is an attorney with Blake Gosselink Law Firm. Madison, this is such a huge symposium. So many people came here today. What were you hoping to get from this symposium? Um, For me, it's really exciting to see so many stakeholders um, from all different levels of government as well as landowners come together to educate themselves on important water issues and talk about how they can make um, solve these issues in, in their community. And I said, I know you work a lot from like the legislation side. What is the importance of having legislation about water? Yeah, water is a shared resource that everybody needs. And because of that, it's important that we have some type of regulation or rules in place to make sure that water is getting where it needs to go and everyone has an opportunity to use water in a way that's beneficial to them and beneficial to the people around them. And having the right regulations and laws in place allow us to establish a framework um, for people to, to use water and for us to know that we'll have water for people to use in the future. Madison, is a lot of the legislation you work with, is it really derived at the state level or would it even be federal or, or even like regional? Yeah, great question. Um, Water policy is made at all levels of government, Um, starting at the federal government. uh, It is big at the state level as well. And then it's really a pressing issue in local government. So it just depends what you're talking about. Um, When it comes to something like groundwater, aquifers are different all over the state. So they have to be regulated differently, kind of based on that aquifer and where it's from. So that is probably more local regulation. However, when we're looking at how the water supply we have as a state and maybe needing to move that water to population centers, that's something that's going to be addressed at a state level. Madison, did you see an interest in legislation shift or change this summer with the extreme drought in Texas? Yeah, I think it's a common pattern that whenever we have a severe drought or some extreme type of weather event like a hurricane, we're going to see legislation come out of that. So after Hurricane Harvey, we saw all of the flood infrastructure legislation, and it was similar. After this drought, we did see an uptick in bills filed relating to water, Um We also saw an increased interest in investing in ways for our state to develop new water supplies. So looking at things like aquifer storage and recovery and the transport of water rather than relying on our current sources of water supply. Madison, how can people stay up to date with like the latest proposed legislation or like what's happening at the, you know, at that level of government? Yeah, people can go to Texas Legislature Online, um, which is an oppor- it's a website where anyone can go on and see what bills are filed, read those bills, see an analysis of them. And then our firm, Lloyd Gosling, has a website where we regularly report on water policy issues. And we have a podcast as well addressing some of these issues. Madison, last question for you. What do you think is like the biggest water issue facing Texas today? 
I think there's two answers to that question. I think the first is cost of water. Um, we need to invest in water for tomorrow, today, and the longer we wait to invest in that, the more expensive that water is going to be. And then we also have to look at where our water is around the state and how we can make sure that water um, is reaching population centers and communities that are experiencing high growth. Madison, thanks for coming on the podcast, and I hope you have a great symposium. Thanks. Our next guest is Gary Young, one of the directors of Clearwater Underground Water Conservation District in Bell County. Gary not only provides perspectives on current water issues, but takes us back in time to West Texas when irrigation provided water for extensive cotton farms. Gary, thanks for taking time to come on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. I was very interested in your speech today and that. And growing up in West Texas, you know, I went to high school in El Paso and all that, graduated from UTEP, El Paso. But also I have a ranching family down near Pecos, Texas and all. And I remember back in the 50s, if you were in Pecos, no matter which way you went, about 25 to 30 miles, you'd see nothing but cotton fields. So that was just heavily irrigated. Obviously, the 50s were a very dry decade in Texas, but they were just irrigating and growing that cotton out there. That's correct. And then when it, everything went down like that, well, then those farms and those uh, Pecos cantaloupe and, and onions and cotton and all that began to dwindle. I know there's still Pecos cantaloupe and onions, but the cotton industry that was so huge out there is very, very small now compared to what it used to be. And you said you had memory of the water just even running down the dirt roads and things, right? They were just throwing so much irrigated water on the fields? Yes. Uh, most of the farmers out there had great big diesel engines pumping water out of uh, the aquifers down there. And they would never turn the pumps off at night or anything like that. Or when they didn't want the water in uh, watering the, the uh, cotton crops, they would just continue to let it run down the bar ditches right down in the road, and it, it looked like small little uh, streams running down the side of the road. Well, and it seems like probably not sustainable from what I've seen in West Texas. That that's not the case anymore, them growing uh, crops on that scale anymore. No, that's right. And, and you go down there now, what was beautiful cotton fields are now just uh, desert arid as uh, native plants and all that are out there. Uh, still, it's a lot of cattle uh, operations and stuff like that. And there's still some, some uh, good farming out there, and the soil and everything is great. The water is just unbelievably wonderful. It's, a, you know, it's a, almost like alluvial wells, artesian wells. Uh, our particular ranch that we own down there near uh, Toyvale, Texas, we had seven springs on that, and the water was just unbelievably wonderful. And now it's primarily just used for oil and gas and stuff like that. So, Gary, a great turnout today at this symposium. What do you think the value is of people coming together? We have a lot of stakeholders from different backgrounds. Why is this so valuable for people to come together and, and share ideas and, and have education here? There's still a lot of misinformation out there that uh, people that live in this area that have heard from a neighbor who told them from a neighbor, etc., and by coming here, uh, this is the 22nd time we've had this uh, symposium. And in that time frame, uh, we've gone from, you know, a couple of hundred to almost uh, 300 this time. And it is fabulous to see the people coming here because they really now begin to want to know about water and their rights as water owners, you know. And it's really difficult to get them to realize that underground water is one thing and surface water is another thing. 
and who manages it and controls it and all that are so very, very important. And the more we educate the, the general public on this and they spread the word, I think we have a better chance of being able to find out. You know, one uh, congressman said one time, we, we're not finding more water, we're just moving it from one place to the next. And, you know, that comes to a point, well, where do we keep moving it from? We, we've got to, you know, they're talking about ASRs right now, which is fabulous. And uh, I'm great to see that we're very much involved in uh, having that happen in Bell County. And uh, it's just one of the good things that I think is happening. But coming from West Texas, where water was like, was like precious gold and silver, it's now becoming that down here as well. Gary, you mentioned ASRs. Could you explain for our listeners, like, what does that mean and why is it so important? Well, ASR is an aqua storage and recovery uh, program that's uh, really catching on big time in, t- in the Texas area. I know it's in other parts of the world, but here in Texas, it's really beginning to kick off. And that is simply by being able to capture water and put it back into the underground as a reserve that will only be really pulled out when absolutely necessary. But it will help protect our uh, environment and our aquifers and et cetera. And it's not going to be the source that will take care of everything. It's just, uh, it's like they say, it's a, you've got a savings account in a bank. It's it's for later on and with an increase in population in this area alone, which is one of the highest in the United States, we have to look at water. With ASRs, are you basically putting the water, recharging it back into the ground, or can you actually put it in large containers for storage as well? My understanding is basically it's going to be put back into the ground and uh, stored there. Um, and, of course, they have to make sure that uh, it's, it's conducive because, as it was explained to me, it's like a, a blood transfusion. You can't just take any blood and pu- put it into another blood. You have to have the water compatible with what is here. The topography, the geography, everything comes into place. So when you put it back there, it's gonna, it's not going to contaminate it. It's going to develop it and help it like that. So, yeah. Gary, how do you think the extreme drought this summer plays into people's interest to come to a symposium like this? It went way up uh, because people in the subdivision I lived in never thought anything about it. But all of a sudden when they realized that even though they have a well and they could water, they couldn't try to irrigate five acres. And they cut it back, cut it back. The new people moving into the area don't have that education, don't have that knowledge. And so, therefore, at first they'll start out trying to make everything wonderful. But... Yeah, long path. It doesn't take them long to figure out they don't need to water five acres because it's native and it'll come back. It's not going to disappear. And so education is one of the key things to really helping in this particular area in Bell County and et cetera. Our next guest is Robert Fleming, who runs Fleming Grain and Cattle LLC. He's a corn, wheat, and cow-calf producer from Troy, Texas. We're here at the Bell County Water Symposium. So uh, coming to events like this, there were a lot of people here today. Why, for example, uh, did you come to the symposium? The main reason I came here, I've been in a, in a, in a, in a, in a battle with our commissioner courts on approving the 312 um, abatements for the solar facilities here in Bell Counties. 
and um, and I've been I was way early three years ago. I still have solar companies that are trying to contact me to, to lease my farms and ranches to them. So that spurred my interest. And so after doing the research that I have done myself and others in the last three years, my my continuation for 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 actually um, to to be edu- people to be educated on solar and possible effects. We're such at an early stage like this, and right now. Um, my main concern is is water quality with with uh, with the solar panels. Oh, and this question came up to me before. So, is the question if you if there are these huge solar farms, will that change the weather? Will that change the the water or the water quality as well? We're at a very early stage. There's other states that are far more advanced to us in, in solar in solar solar production, and and what's on. The, the wire right now that we have a 15 degree temperature in, uh, increase with, with solar ambient temperature increases 15 degrees. And also, I, I am concerned personally about, about possibly changing our weather patterns above them. I see what you're saying. And, and this question came up because obviously solar farms, you're bringing all these black panels, black absorbs heat. So the question could be, would that change the local weather? And if I'm understanding right, that's the concern you have and some other people as well wanting to maybe look into this more. Oh, absolutely. You know, that that's concerns me too. But again, the we're here with water. And and my my concerns is with micro cracks and 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 handling and, and storage of these panels that we have possible uh, leakage of the contaminants and here 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 they're approving in our county here they're proving proving them along adjacent and alongside our major our major water sources and and it seems like to me there's no, no there's no studies that are being done today to figure out if this is just if this is fact or fiction. So, Rob, does it seem from your perspective like they're being approved maybe without enough research and, and looking into this? Absolutely. They're being, the three one twos are being approved, being approved by the commissioner's court right and left. We have, I think, about – we're up to around eight or nine solar facilities that have been approved with a three one two, and they're pretty much all close to major water sources. Rob, any other issues or any other, any other things you would like to share with our podcast listeners? Um. My issue is that that I'm concerned about the the next generation and whether whether the renewable energy you know craze is is a good thing for society or bad. I just uh, I just I just very concerned that that we as Americans don't try to to actually solve any problems until they're until they're created. And here I'm trying to prevent a problem before it's created. I like that you're looking into it so much. You know, you're not saying yes or no. It sounds like you're saying we just need to study this more and understand some of the impacts of it. Yeah, absolutely. And we're such an early stage right now. In Texas, we have about 2 million acres of, of land that has been leased for solar alone. Uh, here in this tri-county area, we have, which is Bell Falls and Milam County, we have about, I've heard nearly 100,000 acres now. That, that are leased to, to, to solar panels. Uh, the uh, Judge Blackburn's presentation certainly showed that at the at the very early part of our meeting today. And it sounds like there's a lot of interest from that industry and, and really pushing hard to get more acreage as well, right? Oh, good gosh. You cannot believe that the contact with the solar companies have with all these landowners. Not all landowners. If you have a landowner that has multifamily, multifamily, um, uh, 
owners, they'll contact all of them and create issues amongst the family on, on the leasing. That's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things going on now in solar leasing that, and, also, and also the impact on our communities that are not being, that are not being brought up in, in, in our articles, in our, in our newspapers and stuff. Rob, I appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Our next guest is Hillary Hicklin from Belton, Texas. Hillary is running for state representative of House District 55. You said that water is such a big issue here. That's one of the reasons you came to the symposium. It's true. Um, it's one of the things I hear all the time, and I think it's kind of unique to this area, especially we see the Stillhouse Lake and Belton Lake just receding to historic low levels, and, and that's just a daily reminder of um, water being such an issue. The drought this summer was so exceptional here. How do you think that helped maybe change perspective of some people or maybe even interest to come to a symposium like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even restrictions in being able to water your grass and and different restrictions like that made people really aware of this being such an issue in in ways that maybe we hadn't thought about it so much before. Hillary, what do you think are like the main issues facing people with water in Texas right now? Main issues. Um, I think um, being innovative in the solutions, um, uh, different ways to conserve, and also uh, coming up with different uh, resources, um, planning. There, there are so many uh, dimensions to uh, a good solution that would be good for this area and, and lasting. Hilary, lastly, why do you think it's important for people to come to a symposium like this and just exchange ideas, have education? Why is this so important? Oh, it's huge. I think we can grab onto a little nugget of misinformation and then it'll take us far down a road that is not even close to the truth. And so it's, it's, it's so complex. There's so many layers of, you know, who's in charge who, of the water? What are, what are the solutions and who has their hand on um, the solutions and, and what do we need to do and where are permits? I mean, there's so many aspects to this issue and the solutions that really is necessary to just get everybody together in a format of a symposium um, and hear all the different factions of, you know, resources and solutions. So. Hillary, thanks so much for taking time to come on the podcast and best wishes to you as you run for office. Hey, thank you so much. I was really, um, I really appreciate your presentation. Thank you. Our next guest is Mike Keister, a groundwater professional with R.W. Hardin and Associates. I've been working in Texas or been working on groundwater for the last 20 years, uh, studying the aquifers uh, throughout Texas, Oklahoma, and much of the Southwest. Mike, what do you think are the major issues that are facing this part of the country as far as water? Uh, the major, major issue is really uh, pretty obvious. It's availability. Is there enough water available for the growing populations? Uh, the, the increase in people that are coming to the area not only do they need water just to drink but also to grow the crops that will feed them we were talking today about finding enough water and having enough water supply like what's the science behind that are are we investigating say new aquifers or or new sources of water or is it a matter of just transporting existing sources in from more of a distance it's really going to be more of the latter as we move forward We're we're here in central texas and as we move to the west of the Austin area or I-35 corridor, we're really looking at 
uh, more arid conditions as you move that direction. The water, groundwater supplies are finite, and we're doing everything we can with what we've got available. But as we move into the future, a lot of that water is going to come probably from the east and be moved to the west. Could you give us an idea of, say, moving water from the east to the west? Could it even come from as far as, like, Louisiana, or would it be more within the state of Texas, do you think? That's probably going to be how far down the road you're thinking, because we have plenty of water, for example, over in Toledo Bend Reservoir, right there on the Louisiana border. However, uh, it's costly to move that water to uh, further distance, further uphill. So Louisiana may be a little bit far, but one of the more immediate resources that's available is the Carrizo Wilcox Aquifer, which is just a few hundred miles or less than 100 miles to the to the east of Austin. Um, it's a prolific resource. It's been identified as a good groundwater resource for the fresh water, but it does have its own challenges with regard to the, it, it is a local resource for those folks that live there right now. Well, that makes a lot of sense. We've heard at this symposium, just the explosive population growth. Do you think like if we don't find new sources of water that that could really limit population growth in this part of the country? That would, that's a, Difficult question, because I think that the innovation is going to come to get the water resources here one way or another. The The economic drivers are substantial enough that we're in a position where we will find the ways to bring the water where it's needed. Lastly, Mike, what kind of projects are you working on? Like as you go through this next month, what kind of projects will you be um, spending your time on? Uh, some of the most interesting projects that I'm working on are really trying to develop models of actually how the groundwater does move in the subsurface. Um, that's really going to help us define what groundwater is really available and help us to quantify how, how much certainty we have with that groundwater. We're also looking uh, specifically at subsidence and how that can affect, how groundwater production uh, can affect changes in land surface. Uh, so those are two of the really big projects that we're looking at in the, here in the near future. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast. Sure thing. Thank you. Our next guest is Jonathan Cobb with Greenfields Farm, an ag business that raises sheep in Central Texas. So, Jonathan, you do a lot of ranching and work in the ag sector. Like, how did the drought impact you this summer? And just in general, what what are the impacts of drought on your industry? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's interesting. 2011, I was in agriculture as well, in a different. Uh, we were doing more root crop agriculture then. Um, so I've experienced that drought, and then the second worst drought uh, here recently. Um, after 2011, we changed our agricultural practices to regenerative practices. And so we've got 13 years of building our soil organic matter and building our water infiltrations. And so this last drought, we actually increased our livestock by about 160% instead of reducing our head. Jonathan, could you explain for our listeners when you, when you mentioned like regenerative sources, what exactly does that look like and why is it so important? Yeah. So the importance of it, I think, is understanding that the natural world we work in is not just a a physical um, material uh, soil. Our soil is living. And so once we understood that and we started promoting the life of the soil and understanding how building our organic um, components of our soil, we're actually storing about 60,000 gallons per acre more water in our soils than we were before we started these practices. So we've got our our reservoir in our soil system of moisture that produces more forage. And then the way we manage our forage as well, keeping higher uh, swords, 
to reduce evapotranspiration and things like that. Jonathan, can that improve soil and water capacity? It sounds like that gets into the forage. So does that get passed along then to the, the sheep? Absolutely. Yeah, they stay in good condition and uh, need reduced amounts of minerals and things like that as our nutrient cycle, water cycle, all that is functioning properly. Jonathan, a really good turnout today at the symposium. What do you think the value is of people coming together like this and sharing the latest education and perspectives? I think it's important um, for people to be represented. So, you know, I'm here. A lot of what's talked about at these symposiums is dealing more with um, non-rural usage, you know, population growth and things like that. But I think being able to interact and mingle with people to try and get them to see the importance of ecosystem services that uh, land management can do on reducing cost for water treatment and things of that nature. What's the impact of the population explosion around here, say, on different sectors of ag? I mean, is there an impact or is it not seen as much? Yeah, the the growth and the cover-up of particularly what I'm passionate about is the Blackland Prairie, uh, some of the richest, deepest soils in the world. Um, a lot of them are being covered up either by highway development or housing development, but the biggest by far threat that we see to the the prairie ecosystems uh, is the solar development. There's hundreds of thousands of acres being transformed into uh, solar, and that's going to be a major shift that I don't think we know the ramifications of yet. I've heard that talked about a lot at the symposium here. It sounds like this is really a a newish thing over the last several years, right? Yeah, yeah. Just in the last, um, man, just the last two years. I mean, we've seen tens of thousands of acres around us. It's about over 30,000 acres within 30 miles of our ranch that's going to be changed into solar. And that's tremendous. Yeah, to me it's sad to see the prairie changed over to that. And I don't, I'm not against the solar generation of power, but I think we're rushing into this and covering up very highly productive and and lands that are contributing to our, our water cycles. Our final guest is Kevin Langford, a water well driller in Central Texas. Kevin, you were sharing like with me this perspective on just all, going out and doing all this work, especially with the extra dry weather and the drought. Uh, what did the work look like for you like with the drought this summer? Uh, the last couple of years, we've spent the majority of our time either drilling wells deeper because they aren't making enough water or, or having to add storage sink systems to maximize what little bit of water people were getting. Kevin, you were sharing with me one of the problems not only is not getting enough rain, but also people's perception that they're going to move out here and have perfectly green lawns. Some of this is really um, maybe mental or cognitive science, right? Just how people view uh, life or their expectations. Yeah, people don't understand that they use 50 to 75 percent of their water outside on that lawn. And as Central Texas continues to grow in population, and then on top of that, having our droughts, there's just not enough water to be able to water as freely as you want to and have your yard look like it's a golf course. We heard today about the explosive population growth. Is some of that just people moving in, maybe from areas that tend to have a wetter climatology? Or, you know, down here in Texas, too, the sun angle is just so high in the summertime. So let's say someone's moving down from Ohio or something. They're used to getting more rain, but also the the evaporation and the sun angles in the summer up in Ohio isn't as strong. So they might not be familiar with the Texas climate, perhaps. 
absolutely. Um, my family's back east in Kentucky and Ohio, and nobody ever waters anything. Uh, you get plenty of rain to take care of that, and that's just not a reality here in central Texas. If you're not adding water, you know, plants that aren't native to the area are going to struggle. So you really have to be conscious about native plants, not overwatering those, and um, and letting things, you know, maybe get a little browner or die off a little bit in, in the summer, knowing that they're going to come back uh, when things cool back off. Kevin, could you give us a perspective on drilling wells? Is this something people need a permit for? Like, what does that look like? What kind of wells are there? For for our listeners that don't understand this area of, of the country or, or what that would look like, could you just share some perspective on that? State of Texas has a, a little bit of a piecemeal system. Um, you have to report any wells you drill to the state of Texas, but getting permission beforehand really depends on where in the state you live. Sometimes you do have to apply for a permit to drill the well, uh, maybe a permit to use the well after you drill it. Other places, drill it and pump as much water as you want, uh, which really can be problematic when people then are over-pumping with no thought whatsoever of what it's doing to their neighbor's wells. In a severe drought, can that affect actually wells being able to access water? I mean, what are the impacts in a drought for well water? Um, yes, sir. As people are over-pumping in some area, um, that's all shared water. And so that's why so many of our customers over the last couple of years are their wells, even if they were still making water, weren't making enough to provide for those daily needs at the instant that they needed. it. Uh, so they had to store up water in the middle of the night when they weren't using water during the day while they were at work or at school to have enough water to use in the evenings when they were home. I've heard some people share here that sometimes people that will even be on municipal water will choose instead that they want to have a well. Uh, how often does that happen and why do they make that choice? I don't know if I could quantify the number of folks that are doing it, but a lot of folks are doing that because it's oftentimes cheaper to drill a well and you know pay for that and pay for your electric bill than it is to pay for their monthly water bill, um, which is unfortunate because they're not necessarily understanding the impact that that's having on the aquifer because they turn on the tap they're getting water from the lake um, without understanding the impact that they're having on the aquifer i'd imagine some people might get blindsided too saying hey this is great i'm going to have free water and not expecting their repairs and things like that and maintenance right of of a well Uh, yes sir so we try to inform people up front to be setting money aside for those repairs down the road. But it's also a shock when now their 20, 30, 40-gallon-a-minute system that they're using for irrigation, now their well's only making 10 gallons a minute. And so now they're having to either cut back on their irrigation or add storage in order to make that work And uh, when the wells aren't making as much as they used to. What would you say is the biggest issue facing water for Texas right now? Lack of regulation and over-pumping. Uh, we have to uh, be mindful of the incentives that we're giving people to, uh, to move here um, and the, the wise use of the water that we have. Uh, we all have to understand it's a shared resource uh, and we need to have appropriate regulations in place to make sure that we're using water in a responsible manner. So there's plenty of water for us to continue to use together uh, in the centuries to come. 
Kevin, last question. What's the value of folks coming to a symposium like this, getting education, sharing thoughts and perspectives? Why is this so important? I've been in the water industry for 12 years, and I learn new information every time I come. And so it's important for all of us to continue to educate ourselves. Thanks, Kevin. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and best wishes in the future. Thanks, sir. Wow, what an amazing journey we had at the Bell County Water Symposium. Thank you so much to all of our guests who shared their perspectives on water in Central Texas. As I look back on the interviews, I have three major take-home points I learned at the symposium. Number one is the importance of engaging in workshops, conferences, and symposiums. With the growth of social media, artificial intelligence, and computer-generated animations, I hear people questioning more and more about which information sources can be trusted. As technology continues to explode, so does the spread of misinformation. In this rapidly changing world, it's more important than ever that we rely on trusted, credible, and accurate sources of information. We trust information that comes from people who who we have relationships with. Whatever your professional sector is, make sure that you're interacting at professional meetings where accurate information is taught and discussed. So many participants at the symposium said they came there specifically so they can get trustworthy, accurate information. And I thought, wow, we all should be doing this, continuing to engage at professional meetings. Number two, the topic of educating transplants who move to dry climates came up a lot at the symposium. Many people moving to places like Central Texas, Colorado, Arizona, or California are coming from places with wetter climates. A big part of the battle for water is psychological, as transplants bring with them perspectives and values like the desire for a lush green lawn that looks like a golf course. Consider the statistic that Kevin Langford shared. Many people in Central Texas use 50 to 75% of their water outside the home, watering lawns and non-native plants. Many of the stakeholders at the symposium engage with the public to educate them that a brown landscape with native plants will spring back to life with a little water, and it's much better fit for the climate of Central Texas. Finally, the third major take-home point that I got at the symposium was the topic of solar farms. So a lot of people were talking about this, and my initial reaction to this is I was really impressed by the posture that people had when they were discussing this issue. You know that Texas is a major energy-producing state, generating energy through both renewable and non-renewable resources. I did not hear anyone say that solar energy development needs to be prohibited or needs to be stopped. What I did hear was a lot of people say they're concerned that the massive solar farms are being approved too quickly before we really fully understand the impact of these farms and the environment. So there are two major potential impacts to the environment. The one has to do with air temperature. If you've ever seen these solar farms, it's just in huge area, huge tracts of land, sometimes thousands of acres are just filled with solar panels. We know that those solar panels are usually black or a very dark color. They're designed that way to absorb the maximum amount of radiation and heat energy. One of the concerns is that having that much black color on the landscape can actually absorb a lot of energy and increase the temperature. It can actually change a microclimate. Think about urban heat islands, for example. We know that cities often heat up and absorb heat much faster than the surrounding environment. The same thing could potentially happen with these solar farms. They could really heat up the areas near them, and that could potentially change the air, atmospheric circulation and you know maybe even affect precipitation pan, um, patterns. So I think a lot of 
people and stakeholders in the region were concerned. Have we studied this enough to know of the potential impacts of solar farms on microclimates? The number two issue has to do with um, these solar panels related to water pollution. So imagine this as solar panels crack and weather, what happens to the heavy rain that runs off of them? For example, are there chemicals from the electrical components that run off solar farms and into the groundwater? The perspective I heard from a lot of people is that they want these topics to be studied in greater greater depth. And um, they're concerned that too much of the land is transitioning into solar without really understanding the potential impacts on the environment. So that was an issue I was not expecting. And everyone had said that the growth of these solar farms is just absolutely explosive especially in the past two to three years. And some farmers actually said that their their properties are now almost surrounded by these solar farms. So uh, understandable why they would want to know more about the impact on the groundwater and the local environment. Well, hey, GeoTrackers, thanks so much for coming along on this trip to Central Texas. I love these episodes when we can travel together to a place in the world that needs to adapt to extreme weather and natural disasters. I always find that lessons I learn in places like Bell County, Texas, can be applied to many other regions, even if they're facing a different set of hazards. Thanks for coming along on the journey. This is Dr. Hal signing off, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrack Podcast.